Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, The Peaky Blinders and other notorious turn-of-the-century English gangs. Unlike the series, there are no real central characters to the real Peaky Blinders, Eric. So my first book, it's, there's lots of names in it because there are no central characters. There's some tough families like the Sheldons. There's another family that was notorious from Aston called the Simpsons. There are the Tucky brothers who feature later on. But there's no dominant characters as we see in the series. These are fluid, amorphous gangs. Very difficult to find out lots about the characters involved because the only time they come into the light of history is when they are arrested. You might find something in a newspaper or obviously in the police records. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for joining me. Apologies for my voice. I continue to suffer a bit from from some sinus issues. It's that time of year. On with the show. It is so great to have as my guest today, Carl Chin. He is a British author, historian, and broadcaster, and an expert on all things gangland England. His book, Peaky Blinders, The Legacy, has just been released this fall. Great to have you on the show. I'm so excited to chat with you about your book. Thank you, Eric, and thanks for inviting me to join you and to say a big hello to everybody who's listening. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. So let me start with this. How did you become such an expert on the Peaky Blinders gang? Really interesting question. First of all, it's lots of gangs, not just the one gang as we see in the series. I'll come back to that later on. I'd heard of the Peaky Blinders growing up, like a lot of Brummies of my age, I'm 64. We'd heard, well, really all we'd heard of it was that they were fearsome characters. They were gangland men who stitched disposable safety razor blades into the peaks of their flat caps, which in a fight, they whipped off and slashed the peak of the cap across the foreheads of their enemy 
hence causing blood to go in their eyes and blind them. And that's about the most that we knew about them. One or two older brummies than me I've spoken to said their mums and dads would frighten them as kids, say, if you don't behave yourself, the Peaky Blinders will come and fetch you. But that was about it. But when I started to research and then write my doctoral thesis in the early 1980s, it was about the part of Birmingham, a working class district called Sparkbrook, where my dad's family came from. But I wanted to embed that research in the late Victorian period, the Edwardian period, within Birmingham as a whole. And that's when I first started to research the Peaky Blinders. Again, my doctoral thesis, it wasn't about the Peaky Blinders, but they featured in the thesis uh, back in 1986. And then in the mid-1980s, I started to research a book about illegal bookmaking. My dad and my granddad had been illegal bookmakers, backstreet bookmakers in Birmingham. It uh, was against the law in Britain to have a better way for the racecourse for cash until 1961. And so I wanted to write a book about illegal betting, looking at it across England, Scotland and Wales. I'd been a bookmaker myself, always worked in the business from when I was a kid. And dad was still involved in bookmaking, although we'd sold the betting shops in 1984. He was still the president of the Birmingham Bookmakers Protection Association. And what I wanted to do, Eric, was find out more about racecourse betting. Because as an off-course bookmaker, we never went racing. Dad put me in touch with a number of old racecourse bookmakers, and they were the first ones to tell me about the Birmingham gang, who terrorised the racecourses in the early 20th century, and they were led by a man called Billy Kimber. We'll obviously come back to him later, as he features in the series. They then put me in touch with a man who was the son of one of the real Derby Sabini's right-hand men. Sabini again features in the series. And they put me in touch with the younger brother of Alfie Solomon, who was, his real name was Solomon, not Solomon's, but again, he's a key character in the series. So my research into the Peaky Blinders began in the 80s and has been ongoing. And my research into the gangs of the 1920s began in the mid-1980s and has been ongoing. Uh, can, can I ask you to explain uh, what a Brummie is? A Brummie is a, a person from Birmingham. The dialect name for Birmingham is Brummagem. So Brummies take our name from the dialect name, Brummagem. We're Brummies from Brummagem. We're not Burmies from Birmingham. Got it, got it. Yeah. And again, because most of my listeners are from the United States... I'm hoping you can talk a bit more about Birmingham, where it is in relation to London, and what the city was like in the late 1800s and early 1900s when the Peaky Blinders gang was running wild in the streets. Well, Birmingham, Alabama takes its name, obviously, from Birmingham in England, because Birmingham, Alabama was an industrial city. And Birmingham in England was renowned as the city of a thousand trades. It was a major manufacturing city that had a very big export market to America from the late 18th century and always had close connections with the United States of America in particular. Why was it called the City of a Thousand Trades? Because unlike Sheffield that was famous for steel, unlike Bradford that was famous for its woolen products, 
and like the Northeast for its shipbuilding, Birmingham was not dominated by one industry. It was a centre of people, often in small workshops, as well as big factories, turning out small metal goods. One of the most important metal goods they turned out, particularly for the United States of America, were steel pens. You know the old-fashioned pen nibs that would have been dipped into ink? Yes, for sure. Yep. The Americans bought all of their pen nibs in the 1860s, 70s, 80s from Birmingham. So Birmingham was a major manufacturing city. It ex expanded enormously during and after the Industrial Revolution. And it was a city that was famed for its products. So I've binge watched <laughs> Peaky Blinders like a lot of people have. Uh, enjoyed it. Loved your book. Uh, many of my listeners may not know much about the gang, however. Uh, perhaps you can walk us through a basic history lesson of the Peaky Blinders. Who were they? How did they get their name? When and where did they operate? Okay, quick resume then, Eric. The series Peaky Blinders has been an international success. And it's been great for Birmingham because it's brought positive attention to Birmingham. It's also engaged a lot of younger people in wanting to find out more about their own history, not just about Birmingham, but about the 1920s. The series is set in the 1920s. It's based on a backstreet gang called the Peaky Blinders, which the members of which are, are, are grouped around a family called the Shelbys. They're glamorously dressed, they're fashionably dressed, and they could be regarded as anti-heroes. The real Peaky Blinders were very different. There was not one gang. There were numerous backstreet gangs. From the 1870s, Birmingham, like Manchester and Salford, London, and one or two other places, Glasgow included, had a major backstreet gang problem. Originally, the backstreet gangs of Birmingham were young men, sometimes joined by young women, and they were called sluggers. From the old boxing term to slog, to hit somebody with a powerful blow. And they were based on streets. One street would fight the next street. These gangs were not glamorous. They were not well dressed. They were mostly made up of poorer young men. They fought each other with stones, throwing stones at each other, half of bricks at each other. But their favourite weapon, their most feared weapon, was a buckled belt. Thick leather belts, they would take off, they would wrap the belt around their wrist, leaving about eight inches looped. And that loop they would buckle together. And then they would slash their enemies with the buckle of their belt, inflicting terrible wounds. Sometimes loop, men lost their eyes. From 1890, a new term comes in to describe the gangs of Birmingham. Peaky Blinders. Now the series picks up on the Birmingham myth that the Peaky Blinders were so named because they sewed disposable razor blades into the peaks of their flat caps to use as weapons. They didn't. First of all, they used their belts and other weapons, as I've mentioned. Secondly, disposable safety razor blades were not sold in great quantities in England until Mr Gillette brought them over here in the early 20th century, by which time the gangs were disappearing. The reason they were called Peaky Blinders is much more prosaic. The original Peaky Blinders wore what was called a billycock hat, a kind of bowler hat. They had very close cropped hair, 
with a bit of a quiff on one side. And they like to show that quiff off. And so they would pull the billycock to one side of their face, over the forehead, almost blinding one eye to show off the quiff. By the later 1890s, the fashionable headgear was a flat cap. And similarly, they would pull the cap over one eye so that the peak blinded one eye. That's why they were called peaky blinders. They were not meant to be admired. They were not glamorous anti-heroes. They were vicious, violent thugs. And one of those peaky blinders was my great-grandfather, Edward Derrick. So what position did your great-grandfather have in the gang? We must bear in mind, Eric, that the Peaky Blinders were not organised gangs like we understand them today. They were backstreet thugs based in one street. They could sometimes together come together in district gangs. There were hard men in the gangs, but they were not they were not hierarchical like we might see with a mafia gang or the triads or the Yakuza or the Andregata or gangs such as that. They were loose, very loose, amorphous groupings. My great-grandfather's older brother, John Derrick, was a leader of a Peaky Blinder gang in Sparkbrook. My great-grandfather was a Peaky. He was a vicious, brutal man. man. He used to beat up my great-grandmother, and he was a petty thief like many of them were. He was not a man to be admired. In fact, I have nothing but contempt for him. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So, so how do you feel being connected by blood to to members of the Peaky Blinders? I'm a historian and I'm a social historian. I believe powerfully in the spoken word of working class people and that history belongs to all of us and should be opened up and democratized. And if I'm going to talk and write about other people's histories, I have to open up about the unsavory aspects of my own family's past, Eric. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. Yep. So in, in the series, there are... There are some very central characters. They are the Shelby family, and based on a real family named the Sheldons. Yeah, very roughly based on a family called the Sheldons, who had been Peaky Blinders. Okay. So was the historical family, the Sheldons, similar in any way to the fictional Shelby family? Not in terms of the glamour. The Sheldons were... Vicious men, they were involved in one of the, in fact, probably the worst gang war in Birmingham's history until recently when drug wars have happened. It was called the Garrison Lane Vendetta. It was fought between men who lived near each other, two groups of men, one of which was around the Sheldons. They were armed robbers, they were criminals. They were not men to be admired. And unlike the series, there are no real central characters to the real Peaky Blinders, Eric. So my first book, it's, there's lots of names in it because there are no central characters. There's some tough families like the Sheldons. There's another family that was notorious from Aston called the Simpsons. There are the Tucky brothers who feature later on. But there's no dominant characters as we see in the series. These are fluid, amorphous gangs, very difficult to find out lots about the characters involved because the only time they come into the light of history is when they are arrested. You might find something in a newspaper or obviously in the police records. Unfortunately, the Birmingham police took lots of photographs, which is where many of the photographs in my books come from. How did the gang make their money besides 
at the racetracks? Were they involved in different illegal enterprises? Yeah. So, so let's be, bear in mind, the Peaky Blinder gangs, not one gang, lots of gangs, backstreet thugs, most of them are working men, working in factories, but a few of them, quite a large minority, are also petty thieves, just like my great-grandfather. They're not big-style gangsters. They are more concerned with fighting each other and attacking the police. They hate the police and attacking innocent people who, who they don't like for one reason or another. The petty crime they're involved in. I mean, let me give you an example. My great-grandfather got arrested for stealing a side of bacon from outside a pork butcher shop. Not big crime, is it? No. This is petty criminality. Now, what happens is the Peaky Blinder gangs disappear before the First World War. In the series, it's set in the 20s, the Peaky Blinder gangs had gone by then. Why are they put down? Why do they disappear? A number of social, legal and policing reasons. First of all, Birmingham in 1899 appoints a powerful chief constable, a man from Northern Ireland, a Northern Irish Protestant called Charles Horton Rafter. There are some synergies between his character and Major Campbell in the series. Rafter recruits a lot of young policemen. The Birmingham police force is badly under-policed and the policemen have, have almost given up in the, in the back streets. He recruits lots of young, fit men. And the story goes in the Birmingham police that it was passed on that Rafter asked three things of his men. Can you read? Can you write? And can you fight? They were trained to fight they were big, tall men. The Birmingham Peaky Blinders were small men. Like, not all of them, but most of them were like my great-grandfather. He was five foot four and a half. Whereas the police were five nine, five ten, big, broad men. They went about in twos and they could fight. So there's a battle on the streets taking place. The poor working class are the people that are suffering from the bullying of the Peaky Blinders. They now see the police sticking up for themselves and for the innocent people. And they start to give evidence against Peaky Blinder thugs. Very, very important working class support. When Rafter died in 1936, tens of thousands of working class Brummies turned out onto the streets to show their respects for him. Stronger sentences are now being passed for violent crime. And at the same time as these changes, Eric, some a few socially concerned Vicars, ministers, priests and others are setting up what we would now call youth clubs, particularly boxing clubs and football clubs. And these attract lots of the youngsters before they can join a gang. So you've got these different factors all coming together, not planned, but organic. And by 1907-1908, the gangs are disappearing. By 1910, the Peaky Blinders are being written about in the past tense. That doesn't mean to say there are still not nasty men. Of course there are. And there are still small gangs. But the rampant ruffianism, which had bedeviled and blighted the lives of the hard-working, decent majority of the poor, and I want to get that point over, and the vast majority of the poor were hard-working, Eric. They were decent people. And they are the ones that are delighted when the Peaky blinders are put down. Now, some of the most vicious and most criminally minded 
of the Peaky Blinders go on to become racecourse rogues. And that's the next stage. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. So how did these last remaining members of the Peaky Blinders transition to race course crime yeah what what happens is from the 1870s and 80s some of the sluggers and then the peaky blinders start traveling the race courses of england particularly the midlands and the north as pickpockets why well cash betting away from the race course is illegal so people if they want a cash bet go to the race course people are carrying cash number one on race courses. Number two, there are very few policemen on the race courses because the race course authorities don't want to pay them. And so pickpockets, teams of them in five, six and eight, can operate with impunity. And what they start doing as well, Eric, they start to intimidate the bookmakers for protection money. By the early 20th century, a few more of the Peaky Blinders are moving towards the race course because of the changes in Birmingham, making it hard for the Peaky Blinders in Birmingham. Amongst those Peaky Blinders, moving to the race course in the early 20th century, is a man called Billy Kimber. Now in the series, if you remember series one, Eric, of Peaky Blinders, Billy Kimber was portrayed as a small Londoner, 
He wasn't. He was a big, burly brummy, a man from Birmingham. He was a feared fighter, but he got a brain as well. He's got a pickpocketing gang, doing well. But he sets his sights on Richard Pickens. The Birmingham rogues, known collectively as the Birmingham boys, these small groups of six, seven and eight men in a different small gang of pickpockets, they can come together in a powerful, vicious force of 70, 80 violent men. They start to dominate the rackets, the blackmailing of bookmakers, the pickpocketing and thieving on the race courses in the Midlands of the North. But Kimber sets his sights on Southern England. There's more riches down there. There's more race courses down there. And this is where he's clever. In order to take over the rackets down south, he needs London backup. London is the big city down the south. And he paddles up, he teams up with the feared McDonald brothers from the Elephant Boys from South London, a big gang from around the Elephant and Castle, and with George Sage, who is a fighting man with support from North London, across the River Thames, in Camden Town. And just before the First World War, Kimber, the Birmingham boys, now loosely gathered into, into the, the Birmingham gang, and his London allies take control of the rackets on the racecourses of Southern England, and they're making big money. But then the First World War comes. Racing is all but stopped as it's seen as unpatriotic. Kimber, like a lot of the rogues, joins up for deserts. But after the war, the Birmingham boys come back together as the Birmingham gang. Kimber takes over the leadership. And once again, with his London allies, the Elephant Boys and Sage from the Camden Town, they take over the rackets of the racecourses down south. Kimber's control aroused envious eyes. And the gangs of London, who were not involved with him, were looking for an opportunity to take control, to wrest power from him. That opportunity arose in March 1921. The Birmingham gang, their London allies, the Elephant Boys and Sage from North London, hated Jewish bookmakers. They were violent, vicious, racist thugs. And they were extorting extra protection money from the Jewish bookmakers from the East End of London. One of those Jewish bookmakers was a man called Alfie Solomon. Now, remember in the series, Eric, Alfie Solomons is portrayed as an orthodox type Jewish man. Right. He's played by Tom Hardy. That's right. Now, in reality, he wasn't orthodox Jewish. He was a, from a secular Jewish background. His family were Anglo-Jewish. They'd been established in England for at least three generations. Alfie Solomon was bookmaking taking bets on the 12th of March, 1921 at Sandown Park race meeting. I interviewed his younger brother, Simmy Solomon. Wouldn't let me record him, but I had to make notes. He told me that his brother was brutally assaulted by one of the Birmingham gang. Other eyewitnesses I've found since, not to talk to, but I found uh, an, a, one or two accounts of this attack verified what Alfie Solomon's brother told me. His name was Simeon Solomon. A horrible, nasty man called Thomas Armstrong wanted a bet with Alfie Solomon. Now, this was another ruse of the gangs, Eric. They would shout out a bet, let's say £10. I'll have £10 on that horse, it's 11 to 4. 
Are they going to pay the bookmaker? No. But if it wins, do they want paying? Yes. Alfie Solomon knew this ruse and he refused to take the bet on the nod, the nod of the head from Thomas Armstrong. But the horse won. Armstrong came back, demanded his money. Solomon refused to pay it. Armstrong had a heavy pair of binoculars. He took them off and he smashed them into the face of Alfie Solomon, who was standing on a stool, as all the bookmakers did, to shout out to the crowd. Solomon fell backwards, his face a bloody mess. And Al Tommy Armstrong then trod all over his face. And later that day, he beat up so badly another Jewish bookmaker, an innocent man, that that poor man died later of his wounds. Simeon Solomon told me that that's when it started, the fight, the war between us and them, between the North and the South, London and Birmingham. And Solomon knew he wasn't strong enough to take on Kimber and the Birmingham gang. So he looked for support to the governor of the East End Jewish underworld, a man called Edward Emanuel. He got a lot of roughs, tough men, but they weren't strong enough to take on the Birmingham gang and the Elephant Boys. And so they called in Darby Sabini, who led an Anglo-Italian gang from Clerkenwell in North London, where the Little Italy of North London was. Now, in the series, Eric, you'll remember that Darby Sabini was portrayed as an elegantly dressed Italian gangster. He wasn't. He was Anglo-Italian. He was born in England. His mum was English. His dad had come over here as a young man in the 1860s. And he came from North Italy's father and not Sicily. And far from being elegantly dressed, the real Darby Sabini usually wore a flat cap and a collarless shirt. But he was a clever man. And he had a tightly knit group around him, including his brothers Harry and Joe, a lifelong friend called Angelo Giannicoli, also Anglo-Italian, later known as Georgie Langham, Alpha White and Jim Ford, who were both of English descent, and now Alfie Solomon and the Anglo-Jews. So this gang came together to take on the Birmingham gang, and it led to a spring and summer of violence on the racecourses of southern England and on the streets of North London. Would you mind telling us about the Epsom Road battle? Yeah, so there were lots of battles, but one of the most important was the Epsom Road ambush or the Epsom Road battle. Billy Kimber had had a meeting earlier with Sabini a few months earlier to try and arrange a truce between them. But it got violent when Alfie Solomon turned up and Kimber went for Solomon, mouthing anti-Semitic obscenities and was shot in the back. Kimber was recovering from the wound, but he ordered a massive attack at Epsom. Epsom's in the south of England, Eric. It was the Derby meeting, the biggest of the year. And if the Birmingham gang and their London allies could assert their control that day, then the Sabinis and their Jewish allies were finished. Remember, I mentioned earlier on, that the Birmingham gang was a loose amalgam, a conglomeration of small groups. Some of them went to Epsom. Others went to Epsom and left early. One group was a coachload of men, led by a man called Edward Banks. It was made up of different little groups. And 
after racing, they waited on the road leading away from Epsom for a carload of Jewish bookmakers from Leeds to turn up. They assaulted those Jewish bookmakers up in a terrible way with choppers, axes, hammers, there were pistols involved, you name it, they had it. And the Jewish bookmakers were badly beaten up. The older gang books would tell you it was a mistake by the Birmingham gang because the Leeds bookmakers were allies of the Birmingham gang. They had been allies, but I was told back in the 80s they were switching allegiance to Derby Sabini and Alfie Solomon. And so Kimba and the Birmingham gang wanted to teach them a lesson. Afterwards, 28 men were arrested. They made a mistake. They went and had a drink and the police managed to corner them. Out of those 28 men, 17 of the most violent of the Birmingham gang were sent down for long terms. So the Epsom Road battle backfired on the Birmingham gang. 17 of the top men were lost. There was another big battle at Bath where the Birmingham gang brutally assaulted Anglo-Jewish and Anglo-Italian bookmakers. But by now, the Birmingham gang had overplayed their hand. What Edward Emmanuel had done, the governor of the Jewish East End underworld, was he was moving into legitimacy. He wanted to set up a printing business to print everything the bookmakers needed. And he and a number of leading bookmakers from the south of England set up the Bookmakers and Backers Protection Association. What they did, Eric, is that they employed the Sabini gang as legitimate stewards to keep out the Birmingham gang. The police supported them and so did the racing authorities. And so by the autumn of 1921, the Birmingham gang, not necessarily through violence, but through astute dealings, had to move out of their control, had to give up control of the south of England. They maintained their control in the Midlands and the north, but the Sabini gang took over the rackets down south. That would then lead to another war in 1922. So while all of this was happening, were the newspapers covering it pretty extensively? Yeah, there was extensive newspaper coverage because there were attacks at Greenford Trotting Track, at Alexandra Park, at Sandown Park, at Bath Races, there were wild scenes, and at Epsom, and at other places. And this was a new phenomenon in British history. The Peaky Blinder gangs had fought each other within Birmingham. The Scotlers of Manchester and Salford had fought each other within Manchester and Salford. The gangs of Glasgow had fought each other within Glasgow. This now, this gang war in 1921, was a new phenomenon, Eric. It pitted two major gangs of adult men from two different cities against each other. That had never happened before in England. The first time that it had happened. And so this did draw a lot of attention. So in the United States, in, in the 20s, of course, prohibition was creating a lot of criminals. And... Yeah. And it was really a part of the birth of organized crime in the United States. Did, did crime get more organized in England as, as well? This is British organized crime, which is nowhere near as organized as American organized crime. First of all, there's no pro prohibition. And, and that is a massive difference, Eric. Yes, backstreet bookmaking goes on. But outside London, there's no protection or very little protection rackets. 
because a lot of the bookmakers were like my granddad. They were fighting me. He was a good boxer. So they wouldn't stand for anybody trying to wrest money from them. This took place on the streets of North London, a war, and on the race courses of Southern England, over control of the race course rackets. There were fears that it was like America, particularly towards 1925 and 26, as more and more was appearing in the British newspapers about Chicago, for example, and other places. And Sabini suffered because of his background. He was, we said at the time, and intimated since that he was in the Mafia. He was no such thing. He was an Englishman. And he had no connections with Sicily. He couldn't even speak Italian. So I think there are big differences between what's emerging with the first stirrings of organised crime in England and what's happening in America, which is on a much bigger scale and a much even more violent, if I may say, with with guns used much more regularly. So in, in the Peaky Blinders television series, the, the Shelbys started exporting liquor to, to make more money in the 20s. Did, did that actually happen? Were those kinds of activities going on? I have no evidence at all of anything like that happening. There is no evidence that there was any connections like that. Eventually, Billy Kimber did go to America with one of the McDonald's, Another one of the McDonald's had become uh, involved with Jack Dragner, the mafia boss of Los Angeles, in the mid to late 1920s. And Kimber is supposed to have gone to Chicago and was hidden because he was an illegal immigrant and he's supposed to have killed a man in Arizona. He was supposed to have been hidden in Chicago by uh, Humph Humphreys, you know, the uh, right-hand man of Al Capone. Sure. That's as much as there is a connection. It's very loose. It's very tenuous. There are no real connections at all. There's a, 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 a gangster from Birmingham, well, a criminal from Birmingham, uh, who wrote a book about a limey in the gangs. He went over there in the mid-20s, got involved in New York and elsewhere. But when he came back to England, he started writing novels. So... If there was a connection, it's tenuous, certainly not in exporting liquor. These gangs in England were concerned with making money as fast as they could from the racecourses where there was plenty of cash. Uh, with all this criminal activity going on at the racetracks, was there some concern amongst the, the general citizenry uh, attending races that they would be in danger of, you know, getting getting shot? <laughs> this, this might, not so much getting shot, they would be beaten up. The, the gangs are very clever. There's, there's not a lot of shooting. More so in London, a revolver might be used. The gangs of London, though, preferred a cutthroat razor. The old-fashioned razors, Eric, they would slash the cheek of a man or his body, but particularly the cheek, because that left a terrible scar from the cheekbone. It's all flesh, isn't it, down to the mouth. Uh, the gangs of Birmingham preferred hammers. So you would get a hammering. <laughs> God. But, so, yeah, mm. they, they, were, they, they were vicious. But what they were clever about was that it's difficult to kill a man with a cutthroat razor or even a hammer. Because in England, if you killed a man you and be convicted, you would be hung. 
So they wanted to scar people, they wanted to scare people, but they didn't want to kill them. There were a couple of people that died as a result of their beatings, but very hard. I mean, Armstrong got away. He was had up for man's murder, then it was changed to manslaughter, but then he was found not guilty because the evidence was too difficult to pull together. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Revis Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst. Is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. So, how did these racetrack wars ultimately resolve themselves? The Bookmakers Association is an important association, and although at the start, Eric, it's involved with the Sabinis, what happens once the Birmingham gang's been pushed out, the Sabinis just take over the rackets. The police are increasingly under pressure. The Sabinis have got the run of the mill down in the south of England, the Birmingham gang in the Midlands of the north. And then in 1925, after an outbreak, serious outbreaks of violence between the Elephant Boys 
and the Bethnal Green mob from the East End of London gathered together against the Sabinis. There's a gang war in Sheffield. Terrible headlines. The Home Secretary declares war on the race gangs. Not race in the terms of ethnicity, but race in terms of the race courses. He sends in the flying squad, a specialist squad from London, onto the race courses of the south of England. In the Midlands of the north, the Birmingham police and others send in extra policemen. So first of all, the stronger policing. Secondly, the bookmakers now want to make sure they've had enough of all this, these years of criminality and being money being extorted from them. So what they do in effect is they legitimise the services that the gangsters had provided. In effect, what they say to some members of the Birmingham gang, to Sabini and others, you can supply us with the chalk to chalk up the names of the runners on the blackboard. You can supply us with the water, the buckets of water and the sponge to rub the names off after each race. You can supply us with the racing lists. We will pay you for that legitimately, but not as gangsters. So there's a legitimization of these rackets. There is a stronger police presence and the race course authorities bring in a force of retired policemen who are straight, who are not corrupt, to force out gangsterism from the racecourses. So there's a number of, again, like the putting down of the Peaky Blinders, Eric, a number of forces coming together in the mid-twenties. And by the late-twenties, the gangs have all but disappeared from the racecourses. There are still pickpockets, there are still some nasty men, but again... The, the, the rampant ruffianism has disappeared. Derby Sabini, for example, moves in 1926 to the south coast of England, away from his gang in London. One of the top leaders of the Birmingham gang takes over legitimately activities in the Midlands and the North. So there's a, a, a definite move by the authorities in the mid-20s, the racecourse authorities, the Home Office, uh, the national government, the local police forces and the bookmakers to end the reign of the racecourse gangs. How did Billy Kimber meet his demise? So Billy Kimber, there's a new racecourse war erupts in 22 because Kimber's allies are left out of the truce with the Birmingham gang. The Sabinis win that war again. Billy Kimber doesn't join in. Although he's living in London, he doesn't join in. And after 1925, he disappears from view. Brian MacDonald and his, his brilliant book called The Elephant Boys, which is well worth looking at because it's got a lot about Los Angeles in there as well, Eric. Brian MacDonald is the nephew of the MacDonalds, who were at the heart of the Elephant Boys. He believes that Billy Kimber went to America. Kimber's Birmingham descendants were also told that he went to America. Then at the end of the 20s, I find hard evidence of him. He's back in England. He's moved away from the tough parts of London. He's married a London woman. He's abandoned his Birmingham wife in 1910 and their two children. The Birmingham wife, poor Maud, lives and dies in poverty. Her two daughters are poor. But he now wants to buy respectability for his second wife and his two daughters with her. 
and he gets work, a legitimate work, at a greyhound racing track, a dog track, but he also becomes a bookmaker. And eventually, he moves from London to Torquay on the south coast of England. He enjoys a very comfortable, very much more than comfortable, a prosperous lifestyle. He has annual cruises to South Africa and other places. And he dies in 1945, regarded as a respectable businessman. And his two daughters have had a very good education, gone to finishing school in Switzerland, had ponies. He succeeded in becoming a different man. Unfortunately, he abandoned his Birmingham girls and they didn't have the same advantages. Sabini follows a similar path, but not as successfully. He moves to Brighton and Hove. His daughters have very good educations, so does his son. His son is killed fighting for Britain in the Second World War in Egypt. Sabini doesn't make as much money as his, old, as his younger brother, Harry, who becomes a very wealthy man. But they're all trying to become legitimate. Alfie Solomon, by contrast, continues to be a gangster. He kills a man in a club. He should be hung for murder. He gets away with manslaughter. And when he comes out of prison, he forms a small gang of Anglo-Jewish toffs going around still intimidating. The last I see of him is in 1936 when there's one more battle, the last battle on the race courses, when Solomon is targeted by a number of other London gangsters. He just seems to disappear from view. But the successful gangsters, Joe Sabini, Harry Sabini, Derby to a lesser extent, Billy Kimber become legitimate businessmen and buy respectability for their children. So did organized crime exist in London in the 30s, the 40s, during World War II? We've got to bear in mind in America, as in Britain, the so-called jazz age was also a hard age for many working class people. But it's got this image of flamboyance. The 1930s, by contrast, has got a much grimmer image. You've only got to look at the, the Dust Bowl of Oklahoma. You've got to see the, the poverty in the north of England, Scotland and Wales as many factories closed down. But it's also a time when a lot of people are making good progress in the new industries. Hoover, for example, sets up in a big way in southern England. But compared to the flamboyance and the publicity around the gangsters in the early 20s, in the 1930s, there is very little publicity about the gangsters. Sabini's moved away from London. Kimber's not involved. The Birmingham gang is disintegrated. No organised crime scene emerges in Birmingham or Sheffield. And in London, it's in a much reduced state. I believe that Alf White, who had been with Sabini from the start, takes over the remnants of the Sabini gang. And that's where Peaky Blinders, the legacy, goes up to them. Really, the end of the 20s, start of the 30s. I'm now researching the aftermath, which is going to be looking at what happens to Alf White, what happens to Al Harry Sabini, what happens to men who have been involved with the Sabini gang and who don't become legitimate. What happens to the Birmingham gang? So that's what I'm working on now, looking 
I'll go down to London tomorrow to the National Archives to research there to find out what happens to those gangsters who remain gangsters in the late 30s and 40s. Well, well, I can't wait to read your third book. It, it sounds intriguing. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. So, so in regards to the, the Peaky Blinders television show, did, did you act as a consultant on that show? No, no, I wasn't involved. They went to a, 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 a different story, which, of course, was their prerogative. So I've had no connections with the show at all. So w- what did you think about the TV series? Really difficult for a historian to watch a historical drama. Eric. Oh, I totally understand. Especially yeah. a drama that's set in the period that the historian focuses upon. So whilst one half of me was watching it saying, this is excellent drama, it's gripping, it's energetic, it's exciting, it's powerful and pugnacious, the other side of me is going, that never happened. No, no, that never happened. (laughs) Right, right. So what didn't you like? What did you think were the misses? So first of all, there wasn't one gang, there were numerous gangs. Secondly, there were no Peaky Blinders in the 1920s in Birmingham. There were men who had been Peaky Blinders, like Billy Kimber, but they were no longer called Peaky Blinders. There was a Birmingham gang, but it was not called the Peaky Blinders. It was called the Birmingham gang. They were not as fashionably dressed as we see now. The Birmingham gang and the London gangs were well-dressed, but not, uh, uh, not to the height of the high fashion that we see in the series. I think, though, where there is a synergy is that Tommy Shelby wants legitimacy for his family, doesn't he? That's his ultimate aim. And that was the ultimate aim of the real Billy Kimber and one or two others of the gangsters. Legitimacy. To move away from the back streets, to move away from crime and gangsterism, and to buy a respectable life for their children. So before the television series aired, were the residents of Birmingham aware of this this rich criminal history? Were, were there Peaky Blinders stories being passed down from one generation to the next? Not the Peaky Blinders. Only a few people of my age and above had heard of the Peaky Blinders. Outside Birmingham, nobody would have heard of the Peaky Blinders at all. The gangs of the 1920s have been touched on in a few gang books, but mostly the gang books of Britain up until the recent years have focused on the Crays and the Richardsons. The Crays of the East End in the 60s, the Richardsons of South London in the 60s. They, the Crays had some connections with the Mafia. So that's a lot of work has been done about those. There, there, have, there has been some writing on Sabini, a lot less on Kimba and a lot less on the Birmingham gang. So, no, the Birmingham gang, apart from a few old people that I interviewed back in the 80s, had been forgotten in Birmingham because it wasn't, although it was from Birmingham, Eric, this is really important to bear in mind, the Birmingham gang was not a neighbourhood gang, nor was it based on one family. It was made up of hard men from all over old Birmingham. Whereas if it had been a neighbourhood gang or a family gang, more memories would have been passed on about it. So the Birmingham gang had all but disappeared from awareness in Birmingham. Wow. Along with the Peaky Blinders. It, it, it must have been really difficult to, to organise this book, about a, the first book especially, about a gang without a hierarchy, 
like like you said, a, a loose affiliation of different gangs, cre- creating a, a a narrative with a beginning, a middle, and an end must have been hard. I, I, I'm grateful to you for saying that, Eddie, because it was difficult to write. The second book, The Legacy, is a different kind of book because there are central characters. Darby Sabini, Alfie Solomon, Billy Kimber, the Corteses, and lots more. But the first book, there's no central characters until the last chapter when I touch upon Kimber, Sabini, and Solomon. So it was more difficult to write. From the 1920s as well, we get these gangsters speaking. We find their words in newspaper articles, in statements to the police. Now, obviously, they're coming. You've got to assess that. But we've got more of them than I was able to find of the Peaky Blinders in the first book. Well, this has been great. Um, I just want to remind readers that your books are available online. Highly entertaining. Uh, very much. I very much recommend them. And gosh, this is this has just been wonderful. I appreciate so much you joining me today. Thank you for your time. Eric, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Can I uh, wish all of your listeners all the very best. I know times are difficult. With, we're facing very difficult times. But I send my very best wishes from Birmingham in England. I've got family in California. Um, my auntie Mavis married an American GI just after the Second World War. And I've got uh, cousins in, in California. So, And I've got a lot of friends in New York as well. So America is a place that's dear to us. Oh, very cool. Thanks again. Again, I've been speaking to Carl Chin. He is the author of Peaky Blinders, The Real Story, and its sequel, Peaky Blinders, The Legacy. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.